How's it going, everybody? This is Chad from the Nitty Gritty. What follows is our random match reviews compilation three. We have five matches that we're going to be going over for you for our podcast listeners. Dusty Rhodes versus Ivan Koloff, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, Hulk Hogan versus The Genius, Randy Savage versus Steve Austin, and Shawn Michaels versus Venom. So please enjoy all these random match reviews that we gave you on YouTube. Thanks very much. How's it going, everybody? This is the Nitty Gritty. My name is Chad. With me is Leonard, and this is a show about wrestling, and we are doing another random match review for you. And this one comes to us from our good friend of the show, Ronnie. And Leonard, why don't you tell us what match Ronnie selected for us? Yes, it is a Texas death coffin match between (laughs) Dusty Rhodes and Ivan Koloff from October 24th of 1980 from the Sam Houston Coliseum. It's a little bit over 16 minutes long. And this is much different than any casket match or Texas death match that I've ever seen before. I've often said of like movies, I don't care what your movie is, as long as you kind of create your world with your rules and you adhere to those. This match does not do any of that at all. (laughs) I was wondering where you were going with that line of dialogue. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because the commentator, and I'm not sure who it is, explains what the rules are. And there's post-match graphics. I say post-matches. They're definitely modern graphics that have been put, put on way after the fact that show the rules. But then they do not adhere to those rules. No. So... The idea isn't supposed to be that you get the guy in the coffin. It's Texas Deathmatch rules where you pin a guy, and then they have, now today I think it's usually a 10 count, and here it seems to be like a 30-second rest period to answer. And then when you lose, if you don't answer, then you will be placed in the coffin and hauled to the back in the coffin as like a humiliating thing, I guess. And this comes about because the commentator mentions Ivan Koloff shows up with a red shovel because he's the Russian and promises to bury all American wrestlers. And Dusty's like, you're not going to bury me, brother, whatever. And that's where this came from. And Dusty wants the coffin in the ring. So usually the casket is outside the ring. In this match, the coffin, and it doesn't have a lid on it. It's just a... the cheapest looking coffin ever is just inside the ring. <laughs> and uh, one thing I did want to mention is that the announcer, when he's introducing Dusty Rose, calls him not only the American dream, but made of living stardust. So maybe that's where the stardust character came from. I hope so. Yes. So um, anyway, uh, here's what's really weird about it. So there's, the match is basically, it's it's five falls. And you know in a Texas death match, the idea is you want to incapacitate the opponent so they can't get up. Right. You know? They don't do that here. No. Dusty the first <laughs> fall off of a small package. Yeah, and I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, and they're, I'm like, why are you taking the rest break? Koloff is on his feet. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. ready, he's ready to go. Um, And they do tease like Koloff getting thrown into the casket during that first fall and Dusty almost trips over the coffin in the first fall. But again, the idea is 
not to go in the coffin, but yet they're teasing going in the coffin. And like they make it look is like they put it right in the middle of the ring to make it as awkward as possible for the talent to do anything. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, they're like basically wrestling in a quarter of the ring because yeah. the coffin's like in the other three quarters of it because they have it not like in the corner, which would make sense, but long ways right dead smack in the middle of the coffin. <laughs> yeah. Also, mentioning the first fall, this is the laziest referee I've ever seen. He gets down on one knee, and he doesn't even slap, like, a certain rhythm. He's like, <laughs> ow, whatever. And it's yeah. like, it's, yeah. there's no rhythm. It's so lazy. It's the laziest referee I've ever seen. Um, so, yeah, they, of course, both guys bleed. I don't think there's any... They don't need to bleed, but it's 1980 and it's cool off in roads, and they're just going to bleed for the sake of bleeding. Right. Yeah. Um, during the, uh, I was just saying, what was the second fall? Yeah. Yeah. Cool off. I think cool off just hits him in the face. Yeah. It just hits him in the face and he falls down. A lot of these are just random shots and they're very short falls. Like, these falls are a few minutes apiece. It took me out of it so much. Like, and by the way, like, because I know Ronnie's going to hear this. I'm so glad that he sent us this. This is such a random oddity of a match. Like, just yes. saying Texas Death Coffin match doesn't make any sense. You feel awkward every time you say it. Yes. But, like, it is what it is. Like, so, yeah, like, the, the falls don't make any sense. The rules are confusing. And once you really look at the rules, like, two or three times, you're like, okay, I guess it. I, I could see here now what they were doing. But, like, it... It's this is such a convoluted setup, um, but having having said that, I thought that the ending within, as you were saying at the top, within the universe that they set up, I thought the ending was somewhat cool <laughs> because it's just Koloff hitting his knee on the edge of the coffin and then getting like you know it's like a double fist hit. Kind of like a Polish hammer. Kind of like a Polish hammer. Yes, thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Dusty does the whole flip-flop and fly deal, but instead of the elbow, he does a Polish hammer, and Koloff just lands in the coffin, <laughs> and the match is over. Yeah. No pinfall, no no intermission, 30-second count. Uh, again, the commentator very clearly said, the match does not end if you go in the coffin. The match ends when he goes in the coffin. <laughs> and we also don't and supposedly part of it is he gets carted to the back while in the right. coffin we don't see that they may cut before that happened but then i'm saying who's going to carry him to the back right there's no one out there to do it or we certainly out. wasn't going to do it yeah you know you know dusty's not going to do it so who's going to go and get and ivan koloff is a big dude in a rickety <laughs> box you know you're going to need Four or five guys. You're on these actual pallbearers, but not yeah, pallbearers. This, this is barely a coffin. It's basically a bunch of boards. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, it's kind of sewed together or stitched together or nailed together or what have you. Uh, and there are handles on the side because at one point, uh, Koloff gets rammed into one of the handles. On the, oh, right. On the and, you know, you're right what you said. Like, this is less used as like a, this is a finale, a finale to this feud. You're never going to see Koloff again, and it's more used as like a tool of embarrassment, kind of like a hair versus hair, 
or something right. to that effect. Um, but it's just like reading Texas Death Coffin and then seeing how it's used here, it just leaves you scratching your head. Um, you know, I really wish that Dusty were still alive to take part in his own podcast and talk about some of these things. Yeah, I don't know if, if anyone has ever talked about this. I mean, this is getting such a rarity, such an oddity. I had never heard of it before, and probably for good reason, because it is not a good match, even right. though I kind of like the idea. Like, I could totally see, say, like Undertaker and JBL having had. But imagine suggesting to them, you know, we're going to have the casket in the middle of the ring. Like, yeah, they- no, that, that would be that would be a no-no, but... <laughs> I can, I, can, I can understand the idea, or like Terry Funk and Undertaker. That would be a great Texas death coffin match. So like a Texas guy against the Undertaker in the coffin. Yeah. But I, you know, it makes sense. Like you're going to incapacitate the guy. You have to basically, most of the time in a coffin match, you're incapacitating them to get them into the coffin. Right. So this is, is kind of adding, you know, we seem to talk about a lot of, of what I like to call, you know, the, the saying a hat on a hat. It's like a stipulation with a stipulation with a stipulation. Yeah. And this is something I think could have worked. But like I said, you establish your rules, you adhere to those rules. They didn't do that here. So I don't know if they just said, hell with it, we're going to do what we're doing. Or there wasn't communication between them and the ref and the commentator and everybody else as to what it was they were going to do. I almost wish they would have given it another gimmick because then i would have recommended this match wholeheartedly tuxedo it it was a texas death coffin barbed wire tuxedo match like that's right (laughs) like i would have loved that that would have been great but just being that it's texas death coffin and when they are the commentator is going out of his way to talk about the rules and the rules do not reflect in any way what you're seeing in the ring. Yes. And I think it's even funnier that the fact, I believe this comes from the NWA archive, so you can tell that they put on modern graphics to it. Yeah. They even made graphics for these incorrect rules. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, absolutely uh, go and, uh, and check out this match. Um, you can uh, find links to it on youtube amongst other we, we didn't give a star rating i would give it like a star yeah I, I would agree with you there i would agree with you there you know i'll go a star and a half simply because of the spot where ivan Koloff's knocks his knee the idea of somebody being in a coffin because they knocked their knee into it to me is hilarious <laughs> like i just i don't know why i just went like i was preparing for i was like how's this gonna end like both these guys like look fine and it's like it's like, oh, okay, well, there it is. So, uh, yeah, go check it out. Let us know what you think about it, and uh, let us know in the comments. Uh, we're always uh, looking to hear from our viewers. How's it going, everybody? This is the Nitty Gritty. My name is Chad. With me is Leonard, and this is a show about wrestling. And this week, instead of one of our full-length episodes, we are going to be giving you one of our random match reviews. And in this case, it was my turn to choose the match. And the match that I chose was Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat in Landover, Maryland from March 18th, 1989. And just a little bit of uh, backstory as to how I came to discover this match. So in researching some of our, you know, best of the decade matches, um, there's a Wikipedia page that lists all the five star and above matches that Dave Meltzer awarded with the Wrestling Observer newsletter. 
And in going through the 80s matches, I noticed in the middle of the Flair Steamboat trilogy in 1989, there was this match from Landover, Maryland that didn't have a link to it, but that it was awarded six stars. And the other matches of that trilogy, the ones that people have seen, were all awarded five stars. So I was intrigued, and I was like, I wonder if this match is available anywhere. But the match would have got seven stars in the Tokyo Dome. That's correct. Obviously, that, that goes without saying. And so I found the match on YouTube, and we'll discuss that. But uh, just a little bit of backstory as to this match in terms of how it relates to Dave Meltzer. Um, he had been tweeting out some things. I guess around the same time that he was rating some of the matches between Okada and Kenny Omega and those matches, you know, in, if you don't know, um, uh, several of them are above five stars. You know, one we mentioned is seven, one is six. Um, and I guess that caused a little bit of a stir when it would first go down. And he being Dave Meltzer tweeted out the following. Um, actually, I'm sorry. He, uh, he wrote in his newsletter back in 1989, but he tweeted about that particular uh, yeah. newsletter, which is, quote, Steamboat Pin Flare in 32 minutes of a match with blue, which blew the top off the five-star scale. This match was significantly better than their Chicago match and deserves something like five and a half to six stars as a fair grade. Those in the know were amazed at how good this match was, particularly when they realized they had another match later that night in Philadelphia, which wasn't as good but was still a fantastic match. And so he gave that match four and three quarter stars in Philadelphia. Now I couldn't find that one anywhere. Um, but I guess, you know, if you get, if he gave the original, the, uh, the Landover one five and a half and the Philadelphia one four and three quarters, basically his tweet was that back in 1989, Flair and Steamboat got 10 and a quarter stars in one day. <laughs> well, they, I mean, they can't have a bad match. Nothing I've ever seen between them was horrible. Just the chemistry was off the charts between yeah. between the two of them. And I, here's the thing, like they had a template and they had a formula, but it wasn't paint by numbers. And I think this match that we're going to talk about shows that because there was a lot of things that they did here that I don't remember seeing them having done in those other matches. The right. Trilogy. Right. Um, so that's just some of the backstory here um and like i said this this match um is available online uh on youtube you can find it now unfortunately the match doesn't have any commentary um although one could argue that it being these two guys it doesn't necessarily need commentary and it's a little grainy and yeah. kind of hard to watch in that manner but i wonder like where did it come from because at one point, there's a notice on the bottom that says Keith Miles to Guest Services Portal 3. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to mention that. I was going to say something, too. I almost wonder if this was like an in-house recording. That's what I'm thinking. And then, survived. And then toward the end of the match, there's basketball audio leaking through it. Yeah. You hear like it's the, like the tail end of a Bullets game that keeps repeating. Like, yeah. like it's something leaking through on the in-house camera, but that's what it seems to be. And I want a T-shirt that says "Keith Miles to Guest Services Portal 3. We should absolutely make that, and you know, five other people would buy it who have yes. seen match. And we and we would know all five of them. That's yeah. 
So I was looking forward to watching this because to me, this is like seriously a, uh, like a diamond in the rough situation. Right, yeah. I mean, the 1989 trilogy is often regarded as some of the greatest matches of all time, rightly so. Right, yeah. I mean, that was my number one match when we talked about our greatest matches of the 80s was the blow-off, right. was the, uh, the Clash of the Champions two out of three falls. Right, and so getting to watch this was, uh, was definitely a pleasure. And uh, so we'll just go over some of the things that they, that they do in this, in this match. Um, but you have, like you said, they work with somewhat of a formula, but they do some different things. Like early on, you have, um, you know, pinning attempts using the ropes by Ric Flair, which... Yeah, is- there's one. I'd never seen him do it before. I don't even know what you would quite call the pin, but it's one where he's got Steamboat on his back with his legs in the air. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Flair's got his foot in the ropes for leverage. I have, I've seen that type of pin before. Very rarely, uh, but for Flair to have his foot on the ropes with that, that was unique. I don't think I've ever seen that before. The way it was done was definitely unique. Um, so Hiro Matsuda is uh, on at ringside with Ric Flair. and he gets Yeah, it took me a while to figure out who that was uh, because I knew it wasn't J.J. Dillon. It was too thin. Yeah. And, and then I was I was trying to – because I thought Matsuda had come in after this. But, but no, this was the period that – for those of you who don't know, at one point here, Matsuda had aligned himself with the Four Horsemen. Um, it was some sort of like Japanese corporation had bought into the Horsemen. I forget exactly what the name of it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. But yeah, but but that's why Matsuda was, was serving as a manager for Flair. And he does get involved. You know, this is one thing yeah. that surprised me is that he's just outside the ring and Steamboat just like picks him up and slaps him at one point. Yeah. And he... And he gets into a fight with Tommy Young, too. Like, Steve is aggressively heelish in this match to a degree. Yeah, he does some aggressive things for sure. And for those who don't know, uh, if memory serves correct, Hiro Matsuda is the one that when Hulk Hogan first got into the business, he broke Hogan's leg. I believe so, yes. Same guy. Uh, So, you know, he's a tough dude. Um, You see... uh, you see Ric Flair get the, the figure four with uh, a little bit of leverage uh, at one point. Um, like I said, Matsuda gets involved and hits Steamboat. Um, there's a lot of good knee work uh, on Steamboat uh, yeah. by Flair throughout this. Mm-hmm. You have two Flair face plants in this match. Yes. I, count, I counted them, and there are never too many Flair face plants. No, you also get the Flair flipping over the turnbuckle and running the apron. But he lands it. He 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 land, he well. There's he one crossbody. Yes, yes. There's one point where he lands the crossbody. There's another one where he does it and Steamboat chops him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They do that twice. You're right. Yeah. So there. So that's in there twice as well. Yeah. There's a uh, a chop over the railing. Uh, at one point, they do some stuff on the outside. Uh, there's a lot of good persistent pin attempts by Flair that I thought well, was cool. The last 10 minutes of the match, yeah. You know, this, I think because it was about 30 minutes instead of the 45 or 60-minute matches they were doing, there seemed to be more of an urgency and an aggressiveness yeah. and a faster pace. Like, the first 10 minutes I thought were pretty good. The second 10 minutes I thought was, like, really good. And the last 10 were, like, amazing. Right. And there were so many near falls and pin tips and different types of near falls and different types of pins and different types of moves leading to pins. It was just, I, I don't think I've ever seen 
that many pen attempts in such a short span of time. No, I agree. Yeah. It's like the last about 10 minutes of this match. Yeah. Um, they uh, At one point, I thought it was a weird thing. And I guess... It, so Tommy Young at one point kicks Flair off of the ropes. Now, Flair is the one suffering through the submission hold at the time. I believe it's Steamboat with a figure four. And yes. Flair gets a hold of the ropes, but like, Tommy Young just kicks him off. And I'm wondering why, other than maybe it's in response to like some of the, you know, heelish cheating by Matsuda and Flair. Yeah. Well, two, there is a sunset flip and a, a great sunset flip that Steamboat gets over top the ropes back into the ring and Flair grabs the ropes. And people might remember a while back, I had asked about that uh, to Jim Cornette, and that was on Jim Cornette's podcast, why a referee would smack the hands off the ropes of, of, a, of a heel on a sunset flip pin. That, that's right, yeah. I had seen with Ric Flair several times. And he said, it's something that has kind of gotten lost, the idea of, and you see that in this match, that it's the old Popeye thing of I, I you know, I've had all I can stands and I can't stands anymore. Right. And it's the idea of the accumulative cheating uh, by Flair, and again the animosity that he and Tommy, that Ric Flair, Tommy Young, greatest referee wrestling combo ever. Yeah, you know, and you can see as the match builds, Young just gets tired of Flair's shit, and that's I think why he does it. Yeah, yeah. Um... There's another spot that I really liked where you mentioned, we mentioned uh, Steamboat being aggressive and there's one shot point where I feels like he does elbows to the leg for like a good two minutes straight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's great leg work by both of the guys in this one, particularly yeah. Flair, but Steamboat gets in on it too. Yeah. And so you see two cross bodies, one by Flair, one by Steamboat and uh, the match ends on a, on a small package. Um, yeah because Steamboat is the champion in here, here and he retains. And uh, it's just, it's a really, really good match. I, I would love for somebody to clean up this footage um, and maybe do a commentary over it. I think that it would be fun to do, and both guys are still alive. So, um, you know, that's definitely something I would like to see happen. But uh, the big question here, Leonard, is do you agree that this match is better than the other matches in the trilogy i i would i would put it close not as good as as the as the uh two out three falls from clash and probably right around the other two to me that grainy footage kind of makes it a little hard to watch yeah um there's a weird segment where flair takes a walk at one point and and then Young comes and gets him and brings him back, and and that kind of breaks up things a little bit. Um, and I, I can definitely see where you could go. Oh, this is amazing! Uh, on on a few different elements. One, oh, this is like a hidden gem of a match, as you said. Two, especially the end of it. But I was thinking I would I would go maybe four and a half to four and three quarters on a five star scale. There are just a little, a few things to me here that feel just a little bit off, like flare walking out, the aggressiveness from Steamboat, uh, kind of some of the, some of the, uh, I don't want to say interference, but what Tommy Young does, right. um, you know, things like that, it just feel a little bit off. And again, it's a half hour as opposed to 45 minutes to an hour. Not that you can't have a great five-star match in, in 30 minutes, 
And I think this does benefit them because, like I said, there's an aggressiveness and an intensity and such, which is great. But I don't know. There's something here to me that doesn't feel quite as good. And maybe it is the lack of commentary and the quality of the video. And, it, I, and it's hard for me to get into it because of those reasons. But I will go four and three quarter stars for this. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you 100%. Um, I would put it about on par with those other two. I would agree with you that the the, uh, the two out of three falls matches is the best. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, for the reasons that you stated, I mean, when you consider the lack of commentary and the audio-video issues, um, it's kind of hard to put this, you know, exactly with those other matches, let alone above it. Uh, but very much worth watching. And I forgot to mention, this is between the Chai Town Rumble and the Clash of the Champions 6. Um, I mentioned that it was in the middle of the trilogy, but yes. that's where it falls. It falls between those two events. So, yeah, absolutely. This is well worth watching. If you're a hardcore wrestling fan, you know, this is something that you should see just because it's very rare that you can see a match that between two guys that had such great chemistry that a lot of people haven't seen. I mean, Flair on other DVDs and documentaries has said that, you know, for a period of like six months to a year, he would wrestle Ricky Steamboat like all the time. And uh, so they probably never had a bad outing. And consider this is a house show match too. That was not for television. Right. And they will go out there and just tear the place down. You know, I remember reading at one point, uh, I forget where, but that Ricky Steamboat and Haku used to do like 60-minute Broadways on WWFC shows <laughs> just for the hell of it because nobody was there to tell them not to, really. Yeah, like listening to some of the podcasts and some of the stuff they would do on house shows just to get a tangent is fun. Like Mick Foley once said that he would do stuff, I forget who, with, and, uh, you know, it was a cage match or something, and Sako went into the cage, and Sako ended up getting the color. <laughs> Which is just which is just absurd. But yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, house shows. You never know what you're gonna see um, on house shows. Sometimes title changes every once in like a, a blue moon. Will you see a title change? Dan Weber and I went to a house show at the Wheeling Civic Center, and the main event was the Shield versus Kane, Daniel Bryan, and John Cena. And after the main event, Cena, Kane, and Bryan stayed in the ring and sang. Uh, Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver. Nice. Can't go wrong there. And got the whole place singing. And this included Kane singing at a point where he wasn't, you know, I think, he, no, no, this was after, it was after he had the, he went back to the mask. He had got the mask and then went back. It would have been the, better if he had sang with the uh, voice box thing. With the voice box. He didn't, but they were all, they were all singing. Yes. All right. Well, if you've seen this match, let us know. And by all means, go watch it and then uh, watch our show um, and let us know what you think of it. How's it going, everybody? This is the Nitty Gritty. My name is Chad. With me, as usual, is Leonard. This is a show about wrestling. And <clears throat> excuse me. This week, we are going to be bringing you another one of our random match reviews. And it was chosen this time by Leonard. So, Leonard, why don't you tell us a little bit about the match you chose? Sure. So um, shortly before the time of this recording, uh, Lanny Poffo had passed away. And Lanny, of course, is the brother of Randy Savage and was the son of Angelo Poffo. And I always remembered hearing about a very famous 
a match that Lanny was one of the few people to get a win, even though it was by countout, over Hulk Hogan. So that's the match that we're going to watch today. Hulk Hogan versus the genius Lanny Poffo for the WWF World Heavyweight title from Saturday night's main event 24 on November 25th of 1989. That was the broadcast date. It was taped, I believe, about a month before. Uh, commentary is uh, Vince McMahon and Jesse the Body Ventura. Uh, when Lanny came into the WWF, which was at the same time as his brother, he was a face and he would write poems that he would write on Frisbees and throw those out to the fans. At this point, he was working more as a manager for Mr. Perfect, but was still wrestling here and there. Now, this match is actually on YouTube, a few different videos. Um, they're all about 13 minutes long. You can also, of course, find this episode of Saturday Night's Main Event on uh, the Peacock Network under the WWE banner. And the one video that I watched, it, it has uh, for the pre-match promos from Poffo and, and Hogan, which includes uh, Poffo doing uh, a poem about Hogan. And then we get Hogan doing early Steiner math uh, because he says the three demandments plus the 24-inch pythons plus all the Hawkamaniacs means that the genius can't mathematically win. <laughs> yeah. So the match, the match itself... Um, I'm going to say, I think, it, I think it tells a pretty good story. Is it a great wrestling match? No, but I like the story that it tells. Um, Poffo starts off by offering a left-handed handshake. Uh, then they trade hands back and forth, and Hogan points to his head to say that he's too smart for Poffo. Lanny then stretches and prancing around the ring, and Poffo is playing it very effeminately. And yeah. it's a lot of the man saying, oh, I've never seen someone do that. You know, right. in a wrestling ring. Lock up. Hogan shoves Poffo straight to the floor to a big pop. Hogan applauds Poffo, flipping backwards back into the ring. You really get a sense for Poffo's athleticism in yeah. this match. He is doing stuff at this time period that no one else is really doing. And I don't think I would see people really doing until the early 90s. Guys like Brad Armstrong and Brian Pillman in the NWA. Uh, Poffo gets shoved down and kips up with a flourish. Uh, the story here, as Jesse Ventura gets over on commentary, is that it's brains versus brawn. You've got basically a macho dude versus a quote-unquote gay dude. Uh, Poffo avoids a big boot. Jesse what? does a good job of, uh, of making the genius look like a credible threat. Yes, he does an excellent job of building him up. And that's why Jesse and, and, and was such a really good commentator, even though he would play heel. And, of course, he's building the heel here. He always gave everyone credit. Yeah. When it was due, I think. Uh, Papa avoids a big boot by going to the outside. And he starts writing on a scroll how to beat Hulk Hogan. And it's a mathematical equation that just it says equals Hulk down, which is hilarious. Yeah. Genius celebrates an arm drag like he just won the Super Bowl. Poffo backs Hogan to the corner and bitch slaps Hogan in the face. Poffo runs off while getting the referee in the middle. Hogan stands back, watches Poffo prance. Hogan then explodes a series of clotheslines, slams Poffo's head into the turnbuckle, back elbow in the corner, and Hogan mocks the prancing. Atomic drop. Hogan mocks Poffo's selling. Back suplex, elbow drop. Boot rake to the eyes, which is classic Hogan. Uh, Hogan does the punch count in the corner, and at this point, Kurt Hennig comes out to ringside. He steals the WWE title belt and puts chewing gum on it. 
He says, that's not a perfect champion, and this isn't a perfect belt. Hogan then confronts Hogan on the outside, uh, or Hogan confronts Hennig, I should say, on the outside. Popo drop kicks Hogan from behind. He hits the ring post. Popo slams Hogan into the ring post. Hogan tries to get back in, but Popo stomps him from the inside. Popo punches Hogan from the on the inside, and Popo gets a step-up moonsault, which was a holy crap moment for me, right. you know, considering this is 89. Uh, but that leads to a Hulk up. Poffo is crapping himself. Big boot, rake to the eyes, and then the back. Hogan fights back with eye rakes and back rakes. Poffo gets punched to the floor. Hennig tends to him. Hogan gets uh, goes out and pulls him off. Uh, and Hogan rolls Poffo back in the ring, but Hennig nails Hogan with the championship belt, leading Poffo to win by count out because supposedly the referee was counting the entire time. Right. But if he was counting the entire time, how come he didn't see the belt shot? Because you think he would be looking the entire time. So the, <laughs> I think the belt is wonky. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the uh, the uh, Hogan chases the heels off, and, and, and they leave with the title belt. And before we mention what happens next, your thoughts on the match? So, yeah, I mean, the match, like you said, the match did a good job of playing to uh, the genius's strengths. And it kind of really you know, conveying what that character brings to the table, be it head games or athleticism. Um, and like I said, Jesse did a good job of building it up. And I thought that, you know, he and Hogan had a good match that kind of mixed actual wrestling with comedy. Um, and in this era, you know, I mean, they, you would start to see it more with like doink and whatnot, but like in this era, you know, it was kind of straightforward when it came to Hogan's matches, especially like it was just, they were very formulaic and you stuck to that formula. And it says a lot that, you know, they had the genius win here, even though it is by count out because in this era, Hogan didn't lose very much. Um, so I liked that part of it. You know, I thought that that was interesting and uh, I'm sure these guys had a bunch of other matches on house shows and, and whatnot. Yes, and on the next Saturday's main event right after this one, it would be Hogan and Warrior against Genius and Hennig in a tag match. Okay, yeah. And I, by the way, I really liked the, te the team of Genius with Perfect. You know, I, I thought that those two worked well together as far as manager, re you know, wrestler. And, you know, obviously Papa would wrestle every once in a while. Um, but uh, I, I thought that they made a good uh, team in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I thought that this match was fun. It made it more interesting that it was a count out loss for Hogan. Um, and yeah, I mean, looking back, you know, at the, uh, the way they were portraying the genius character, the effeminate ways, mm -hmm. you know, it is what it is. Um, but, uh, I think that nonetheless, you can see what type of athlete he was and, uh, yeah that's all that matters so i thought that the match was was entertaining for what it was i don't know that a match like this it would be hard to uh, you know tag tack on a, a star rating but like i think that it was very entertaining for what it was and if i was watching on a saturday night you know i would be happy so yeah especially if you know that th th they were really uh, catering to kids that got to stay up late. That's why Hogan's matches were usually first or second on, on the show. Right. You know? right. 
And, and one thing uh, to mention from what you were saying is that the tour mentions this on commentary. Hogan usually goes against much bigger guys. You know, Papo right. is one of the smaller uh, wrestlers that he would go up against. And um, yeah, I you know I didn't even think about a star rating. If I had to, I would maybe go maybe two and a half to two and three quarters because, as you said, it's a really great mix of the characters and of comedy and actual wrestling and it was something way different than you would see from Hogan at the time and it was part of this bigger storyline and it was part of, of, of a feud that Hogan was having with Henning at the time although I don't believe there was ever a huge blow-off match unfortunately that. not um yeah no. I mean I, I think the the biggest part of that feud was the rumble which they they ended together um mm -hmm. Hogan won but uh but yeah, unfortunately, you see, that's what I mean. I don't think Hogan nor Vince was really big on, you know, having him go up against small guys for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, maybe they didn't think it was much of a threat, but I think that this match at least shows that I think he could have worked with small guys and made the matches pretty good. You know, in some alternate universe, it might have been Kurt Hennig beating Hogan at WrestleMania six. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been fun? Yeah, yeah, that may, maybe we can rebook WrestleMania six at some point. Yeah, uh, and it should be mentioned this leads to um, a segment backstage where the genius is is doing his poetry and, and and cackling, and Hennig is smashing the title belt with a hammer. Right, and um, the rumor was always that this was the belt that became the hardcore title in 1998. That is not true. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a myth that got spread. And, and and I tried to find the reason for this, and 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 I couldn't find it. But I thought I remember reading at some point it was just the fact that they didn't like um, the just the, the way it looked, or or the plate was was not either too small or too big, or something. And they had a secondary a new title made that was very similar. Right. But there was still something where they wanted to, I guess, explain the 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 change. You know why it was a similar but different looking belt, and that's where this came from. And Hogan gets a really good promo after this too, where he kind of says, you know, the the belt doesn't really matter. What matters is he's coming after him and he's coming after Pavo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I I'm trying to remember. I feel like I either listened to a podcast or watched a show or something where they talked about trying to find the pieces of that belt um, mm -hmm. somewhere. I forget where I heard that. Um, but the, those parts of that belt are out there in the ether somewhere. Yeah, I did find that there was there were, it was it went to and I can't remember the man's name now. Uh, uh, the ring announcer. There yeah. was a ring ring announcer. I can't remember his name, but I guess he had it at one point and then wound up selling it. Right. In the late nineties, I believe, because I meant to write that because I found that I meant to write it down. And I didn't write it down, but that information is is out there. Like who had it immediately? Like who? Who took it that night, I guess, was this yeah. ring announcer. Well, yeah. So, uh, like I said, let us know what you think of this match and this angle. Um, because I think it could have been a lot more than what it was, uh, especially with regard to Mr. Perfect. But yeah. uh, let us know in the comments what you thought. And How's it going, everybody? This is the Nitty Gritty. My name is Chad. With me, as usual, is Leonard. And this week, we are bringing you another one of our random match reviews, where we take a random match and we talk about it. So this week, Leonard sent me the match, 
And Leonard is going to talk a little bit about these two guys who, you know, if this was a few years after the date of this event, many would have considered it a dream matchup. But uh, Leonard, why don't you give him a little insight? Sure. So the match that we're going to talk about is stunning Steve Austin versus Macho Man Randy Savage from WCW Saturday night on May 27th of 1995. And before we get to the match, there's two reasons I picked this. One is that we have in these matches kind of done a few where people have crossed that you didn't think had or would have, like when we did Brock Lesnar and Kurt Henning. Right. And here you have Savage and uh, Austin, who were in WCW br briefly during the same during the same period. Um, and Austin talked and how I found out about this is Austin talked about on his podcast once he was asked about, did he ever work with Savage or something about Savage? And he mentioned uh, this match. He said he didn't remember much of it. He said he was asked to do the job, which he was happy to do because it was Randy Savage. And then I don't remember if he said that this was something that was talked about or something he was interested in. The idea of when WCW was folding to bring Randy Savage in around 2000 and 2001. Mm. And that Austin thought he could get a last good program out of Savage. Right. Around that time period. And I don't remember if he said that was something that had been talked about or just something he was interested in. Uh, there probably, I don't think, was serious talks of doing it at that time. But, um, well, I mean, if we're going off on a like a little tangent there, at that yeah. point, that, that gets the rumor mill started as to why Savage never came back during all that time we know why during the initial invasion of wcw ecw why the top guys didn't come back they were sitting at home collecting paychecks mm. and, and then they eventually all did kind of trickle back but savage never got that comeback to the wwe wwf uh, which is unfortunate and uh we all know the rumor it seems like it's been put to bed as probably yeah. not true by this by this point if you kind of listen to any of the podcasts um but you know it is a shame that that never happened yeah and even at that period i think the two of them would have had some good brawling matches yeah because that's at all that austin could do and that's probably all savage could do at that time yeah see I, and and you know if you were going to have a match between these two guys this would be kind of the right period to have it i mean savage was yeah. a, a few years past his prime but wasn't you know, totally on the other side of his career yet. Uh, and and Austin was uh, an experienced veteran. Uh, he, he had five or six years under his belt by this point. And this was before the, uh, you know, the neck injury. So right. he could still go. If you were going to have a match between these two guys, 93 to 95, 96 would have been when you probably would want to have, have, have had it. So, but, and then, but then the second reason why I picked this match was uh, a few weeks ago, now at the time of this recording, my wife and I went down to Cincinnati uh, for a few days on a trip. And the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, we went to the Hall of Fame Museum. Uh, the, the season hadn't started yet, it was week of, but they have all kinds of great memorabilia. Even if you're not a Reds fan, it's a cool place to go. And they had one small display case uh, for their farm system, for their minor league teams. And right dead middle of the case was a picture of Randy Savage signed Macho Man underneath it. And next to it, 
uh, is a baseball bat, a game-used baseball bat by Randy Poffo, who would become Randy Savage. For those of you who don't know, Savage was um, a good high school baseball player yep. and spent four years in the Cardinals farm system and one year with the Reds. Um, and I forget why he left baseball now, if it was an injury thing, I meant to look that up before he came on the air and forgot, but wound up leaving baseball and going into wrestling, which his, his father, Angelo and his brother Lanny were involved with at, at the time. But his original dream was, was to play baseball and he was in the red system. So I thought that was really, really cool. And I sent a picture to Chad. So if he's got that, yeah. he can throw that up. Um, and then when we got done, my wife asked me of everything in there, what would you want? And I said, the Macho Man bat. And she Absolutely. said, yeah, I figured. That's why I asked you that. But I figured you were going to say that, the Macho Man bat. So that's why I picked this match to talk about. So anyway, you can find this on YouTube. Uh, the total video link is about 735. Uh, that includes an intro from Dusty Rhodes and Eric Bischoff, who are in Charlotte in the rain uh, the, uh, for a NASCAR race. The Coca-Cola 600 is that weekend. And apparently TBS is devoting their entire programming yeah. To the Coca-Cola 600. So they're there, but the matches are taking place on what was called Center Stage down in Atlanta, where they did a lot of their studio tapings. Right. Um, so this is the second round for the vacant U.S. title. Austin beat Jim Duggan and Savage beat uh, The Butcher, who, which was one of the Ed Leslie gimmicks that we talked about at one point yeah. in the first round. Uh, Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan are on commentary. The winner here will get uh, the winner of Ric Flair versus Alex Wright, which uh, I would be interested in seeing that. I didn't look up Flair versus Wright, but but yeah, that could I, be I would watch that a good match. Yeah. So what the storyline here is this is all in a collision course would be Flair versus Savage, uh, because they mentioned that at a previous show, um, Savage's father Angelo Poffo was in attendance and got uh, attacked. His dad got attacked by Ric Flair. Yeah. Four days. Four days before this. Yes. Um, and it was at Slamboree. And now at Slamboree back then, they would induct various legends into the Hall of Fame and there would be people, legends in attendance. Um, and uh, Angelo Poffo was one of the legends in attendance. And the tag, it was a tag match for the main event uh, Hogan and Savage versus Flair and Vader. And Hogan and Savage would win. But then uh, Vader, Flair, and Arn Anderson would attack Savage afterwards. And uh, that would bring Angelo Poffo into the ring. And apparently Flair put the figure four on Angelo Poffo. So that's kind of what the commentators are referencing in this match. Yes. So so this is all on a collision course to get to Savage Flair in the finals of this, of this tournament. So um, this is not a very long match. Like I said, the whole video is only 7.35. It didn't time the match itself. Um, it's, it's real, real simple, uh, brawling to start from Savage, uh, with int the intensity the, uh, commentators selling the intensity as being, he's upset about his dad. Uh, Savage controls early. Austin takes over. They go to the floor briefly. Austin misses a flying nothing and Savage throws Austin back outside. Austin eats the ring post and then the guardrail and another ring post body slam sets up the flying elbow. And that's pretty much that match in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention that Austin has Colonel Rob Parker with him as his manager at this right. point. So Rob Parker's on the outside. Giovanni talks to Savage afterwards. Savage pretty much predicts Flair beating right and saying that he'll, you know, go on to get Flair in the finals of the tournament. So um, 
first my take on it this is way too short you know even just 10 minutes for these guys would have been something for them to show a little bit against each other i think this is really missed opportunity here you know i would love i think this is if savage would have said hey give us 20 minutes i think they could have got 20 minutes yeah and it would have been a hidden gem i don't know if at this point would have been something really talked about but i think it would have been a hidden gem at this point so the so when you talk about this match i don't think you talk about the match itself but i think you talk about the missed opportunity but your thoughts yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's just, it's a nothing match. It's really just a, a, you know, an opportunity for Savage to get, you know, a win, looking strong, you know, going into, you know, the finals for this tournament. And, uh, you know, it's, you'd watch a match like this. And then if you're still wondering why Austin, you know, I mean, he didn't leave, he was fired, as we all know. But uh, if you're, if you're still wondering why he was a little bit bitter, like, I mean, you look at like the missed opportunity as Leonard said here. I mean, even stunning Steve at this juncture of his career deserved more than this three minute, you know, squash. <laughs> from yeah. Like, I mean, they were capable of having a good 10 to 15 minute TV match that would have been exciting and entertaining and would still have, made savage look strong on the way to fighting flair um yeah it's it's just a missed opportunity and you know obviously we would see the potential of austin uh, a couple years down the road um and you know savage would kind of go on to the nwo stuff but uh yeah i mean I'm, I'm glad that i was able to watch it simply because it exists um but after i watched it i was just like wow that was just like nothing at all which is mm -hmm. unfortunate yeah yeah, like like if I had to give it a rating, it would be dud because it's just yeah. nothing. Yeah, nothing really. And and again, the only reason you watch it is to say that you saw it is because it's the only time that these two legendary Hall of Fame icons were in the same ring together. And <laughs> it's just a shame that it was not anything special. And a couple side notes: the WCW Saturday Night Door Entrance Way, I would love to see brought back. Just throwing that out there to uh, to trips, but uh, mm -hmm. also Savage's custom snap into it Slim Jim ring attire. Like at this point, like and Bischoff has talked about this on his podcast, just how like Savage bringing the Slim Jim, um, you know, the money, the, the money. I'm looking. I was looking for the right word there. Thank you. But just bringing Slim Jim the with contract, him, yeah, with the deal. So like he, awesome. they're like flaunting it. <laughs> yeah, it's because that was the, that was the thing that, and I remember hearing Bishop talk about this. The contract wasn't with the WWE. The contract was with Savage himself, right? Because originally, their spokesman was the Ultimate Warrior, and when Warrior yeah. flaked out that's when they made the contract with savage so that was savage's contract to bring with him yeah and i forget how much bischoff said but it was a boot, it basically boot paid money. randy savage's salary yeah um, you know it's, it's basically what he said in, in the past um so yeah i mean you can't beat that deal um but yeah so they would uh go on at uh great american bash uh to have another match he uh savage and rick flair uh for the united states title and 
it's uh, interesting when you look at this rivalry that started in WWF and continued into WCW, like there's not a lot of rivalries that can say they've, I mean, spanned from one promotion to the other. There's a pot. There's a show we should do in the future rivalries that started in one company and continued into another. I think it would make for an interesting list. Um, it would. I'm trying to think of anything that comes to mind off the top of my head and, and, and nothing really because well, you it, could probably say that, Hogan and Flair as well. You know, if you really yes, Hogan and Flair to a degree. And then like you I don't think you would count Jim Crockett to WCW as being different promotions. Uh, but I think if you really right. dig into the territories, I think they're like there's probably some stuff between Florida and Mid-Atlantic and Mid-South that maybe migrated to Jim Crockett at some point. Right. I'd, I'd have to look and maybe there was probably maybe some TNA stuff too, T, TNA to WWF. Yeah. Or WWE. But yeah, we'd have to, that's a great idea for a future show. Put a pin in that one. We'll have to yeah. do some research. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you look at this rivalry though, and you look at the fact that, you know, Flair at one point flirted with Savage's wife here. He's mm -hmm. attacking his father. I don't know if Lanny ever got involved in this rivalry. If they didn't, then I, I feel like that was a missed opportunity too. <laughs> But, yeah, and of course, when Liz would return, she would be part of the NWO. Right, she would align herself with Flair with Woman. Um, at that yeah, point. at one point, and then she would go to the NWO, and then yeah. she would be, and then she would be uh, with Luger, and eventually she was with was with Luger in real life, you know, as as a couple, but would would manage Luger very late in in the WCW era. Right. Um, right. Well. If you've seen this match, let us know what you think of it. Like he, uh, Leonard said, it is available on YouTube. Uh, how's it going, everybody? This is the Nitty Gritty. My name is Chad. With me, as usual, is Leonard. And this is another edition of our random match reviews. This time, I have sent the match to Leonard. And as a result, I will go over a little bit of the history here. So this match is the long-forgotten match between Shawn Michaels and Venom from TWA April 15th 2000 right Leonard yes so at the time of this recording we just passed the 23rd anniversary that's true yes I didn't even think about that um so why does this match exist uh it so we know after uh, Wrestlemania 14 rolled around that Shawn had injured his back um you know, landing off of the casket against the Undertaker. And he stepped away from the WWF at the time. And, you know, I guess a lot of people weren't sure if he was ever going to return because Sean was in a bad place mentally, physically. He had a lot of injuries. He had a lot of substance abuse issues at the time. Um, so, you know, a lot of people really weren't sure of his future, but uh, that didn't stop him from continuing on with wrestling in some capacity. So in 1999, he opened uh, the Shawn Michaels Wrestling Academy with uh, his trainer, Jose Lothario, and they would then in turn feed talent to the local wrestling promotion, which, uh, which is in Texas, called the Texas Wrestling Association. And uh, this was where he would kind of be from time to time and it kind of leads into the story of this match so basically uh 
after a long TWA championship reign, Venom, who is also known as Paul Diamond, lost the title to then ECW star Just Incredible um, with some aid from Shawn Michaels. After that victory, Credible cut a promo saying he couldn't represent the TWA as a true champion due to his obligations with Extreme Championship Wrestling. So he threw the title over the shoulder of Shawn Michaels, awarding him the company's belt. Uh, this made Venom very angry. I blame Shawn Michaels for costing him the match and the tribulations of his entire career. And Venom talked about Shawn screwing him 15 years prior when they were tag team partners and that he was now then screwing him again. And Venom demanded that Shawn defend the championship against him in a Texas-style bunkhouse brawl. So in case you weren't aware, before Shawn and Marty Jannetty were the Midnight Rockers, the, uh, Shawn Michaels and Paul Diamond were in a promotion called Texas All-Star Wrestling under the name American Force. They uh, saw some sense of success there, winning tag team gold twice. Uh, they had a, a pretty good two-year run. Then Shawn would leave American Force to join Jannetty. And uh, Diamond would join forces with Pat Turner to create the tag team Bad Company. Well, Pat Tanaka. Uh, Pat Tanaka. Yeah, this article says Pat Turner. I don't know why. Yeah, uh, and I don't think that's his real name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then Bad Company um, then was also the second version of the Orient Express. Right. Diamond came into uh, the WWF under a mask as Cato. <laughs> so what I want to say here is that a lot of people may not think, oh, his big return matches against Paul Diamond. Shawn Michaels trusts Paul Diamond. He has oh, worked yeah. with Paul Diamond as a tag partner and against him, wrestled against him numerous times. So if 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 this is an injured Shawn Michaels who wanted to be in there with someone he trusted and would protect him, Paul Diamond is an excellent choice. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, this is a – Paul Diamond is, you know – I don't know if I would say journeyman because he's he's had his share of success over the years, but like this is a guy that's worked with everybody over the years and uh, is by all counts a trusted person in the ring. So, um, you know, and you look at this match and Sean has the long hair. And so one would assume he's still not in the greatest place um, at, at this point. You know, he, he, and he does come out to the heartbreak kid music, which surprised me. He does indeed. Um, and so, like I said, this is a Texas-style bunkhouse brawl. He could basically just call it a hardcore match. Yeah, it's an ECW hardcore match is all it is. Right. So I'm going to go over some of the play-by-play -play here because this match, um, the video is like 18 minutes, 13 seconds, something to that effect. Um, yeah. You know, so it is a lengthy match. So basically, um, they also call Venom the CEO by stipulation. So he apparently won the CEO, you know, uh, position at some point um the article i came across did not list why that was but uh basically uh sean comes out they're both wearing you know i'm uh, sean i should say is wearing jeans and a cut off sleeved t-shirt um i think that's what venom is wearing as well it's similar to what they would call you know it, it, back in the day i know dusty Rhodes loved to call this like a come as you are match yeah it's like yeah. come in your street clothes dress as you right. would dress yeah so the two start off by exchanging blows. Then uh, they go to the outside and, you know, Sean gets thrown into the railing and hit with a cookie sheet. Um, then, you know, uh, Venom gets the crutch, a crutch involved and they get back into the ring. Um, Sean reverses a throw into the corner and hits Venom with a can lid. Then Sean does some work with a crutch 
and the trash can and he does some work in the corner and ends up taking his boot off and hitting venom with a boot he does a clothesline then a pile driver on a can lid and he then goes to get a ladder and basically you can see echoes of his match with razor ramon here he does a lot of moves with a ladder on to venom um you know this is how i knew sean was hurting because he does an elbow drop from like the second step yeah he doesn't go all the way to the top yeah so coming off the second step of the ladder is basically coming off the first turnbuckle you know he's coming off of that's true three feet maybe right that's true um they then go to the outside sean uh hits him with a chair um there's some uh then uh some punches in the corner the classic punches in the corner move which is kind of like again that was another hint to me that sean is you know trying not to do too much <laughs> yeah uh, he controls more of this than you would think and it's because he can't take the bumps and he can't right. take the punishment so diamond takes most of the the bumps here yes yes um there's a ladder nut shot then there's an outside shot with the railing into the nuts and then a shot into the head with a cookie sheet. Um, so like Leonard said, uh, Paul Diamond is taking a lot of damage here. Um, there's the classic move that you put the trash can over the guy's head and body and then get hit with the chair. Um, then Venom would get a low blow. He would get some trash can shots in himself. They would exchange some more blows. Then they would go off onto the side where there's like a level or like almost not a stage, but like an, a, you know, a, a risen platform, you know, shall we say um, there's some tables set up and Venom gets thrown off of this platform into the tables because Sean ain't going to do that. No. Um, and, and, you know, it took him a long time to set that up. And today that's pretty pedestrian, you know, yeah. like, like, isn't that what Sting did? Didn't Sting do that in AW one point, like come off of a second level through a table? He's done it a couple times. No, they, yeah. they, they they get those spots set up a little bit faster in AEW than they did here. <laughs> yes, they, they do. But at the time in 2000, that was a crazy, crazy, crazy bump. Oh, yeah. You know, today, that's just something AEW does on a random Tuesday just for doing it. Yes. Uh, but back but back then, you know, that was that was quite something. And I was I, again, it took it was very convoluted, but I was impressed with Diamond just taking it, just doing yeah. it. I was impressed with him doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they would then go back to the ring. Venom would throw powder into Sean's face and then get some shots with the kendo stick. He would then handcuff Sean to the ropes, get some more shots with the kendo stick. Both men at this point, goes without saying, are, are very bloody. Um, this would then put Venom onto the mic. He would do some trash talk to Sean. And this is where the match takes a nosedive because a yes, I have in my notes hell in a handbasket. Yeah, a run-in occurs and based on the commentary, they're calling him Shooter Schultz, which I know is a name you love, Leonard. I yes. know you love the name Shooter Schultz. <laughs> Shooter, Shooter Schultz. I didn't look the guy up to see who he was, but but I, I do like the name Shooter Schultz. Future spotlight on Shooter Schultz. Yeah. Um, there's three failed table break attempts here. The guy does tries two T-bone suplexes yeah. so close to the table. And I don't know why he was so close to the table. This is obviously not the fragile table that we would come to expect in wrestling. But, like, 
it, it no, I don't think it was scored at all. I don't right. know if they grabbed the wrong table or they weren't smart enough to score it. I mean, ECW existed at this point. So um, I don't think that table was scored. Or or if it was, then the guy was hitting it on the wrong spot. Totally wrong. Right. And so uh, Shooter Schultz unlocks HBK from the ropes. And then Sean, probably pissed off by this point, does a running power slam into the table, which does indeed break it, followed by Sweet Chin music. Yeah, well, it should be said, Schultz does eventually break half the table with a power ball. Well, it looked like just the leg broke. Yeah, just like the leg came off. And then and then Michael just, just yeah, with the running power slam, yeah. takes out the rest. And I don't think I've ever seen Michaels do a running power slam. No, no, I don't think he ever would again either. But uh, oh. again, these two guys trusted each other. So... Let me just say, I had wanted to watch this match for a long time because I came across the article I've been referencing a long time ago, and I was like, wow, I really need to watch this match at some point. And it you know, just kept one of those things that got put on the back burner again and again and again. Fast forward, Leonard and I start these random match reviews, and it finally occurred to me, hey, we should do this one. It'll give me a chance to watch this match. Um, it's your basic hardcore match. Um, you know, This was Sean trying to do a favor you know, trying to create a spotlight around TWA and, uh, you know, working with a guy that he's known for a long time. There's nothing fancy about it. It was, you know, fine for what it was. But if you read between the lines, as most hardcore fans who would come across this match will, you can see why Diamond is taking most of the punishment and why Sean isn't. But uh, it's, I mean, I don't think anybody ever thought that Sean wasn't going to win. But, uh, you know, he does deal out a lot of punishment to venom so leonard what are your thoughts you know i to me this was a match of like three parts like the first part when they start in the ring and around the ring and that i thought was pretty good for a hardcore match of this period i thought that was pretty good and then you have where they brawl up to that second level and they do the table spot and that was really contrived you know it was all about we have to get from a to b to do the table and then we have to get from the table back to the ring yeah, because Paul Diamond just climbs up there for literally no reason. <laughs> yes, and 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 then you got the third part, which is back in the ring where Michaels gets handcuffed and Shooter Schultz comes in, and as you said, it just completely nosedives at that point because Schultz can't get the table broke, and everything just falls apart. And his his interference, I get the idea of we want to get this guy over, I guess, because, you know, Shawn Michaels isn't your long-term solution here as a star. Right. Uh, but that was, that was horrible. Like I would say for me, it kind of was like around three stars and then kind of came down to maybe two and a half. And I, then, agree, I agree with you totally there. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe at the, at, I, I don't know if I want to say two, two and a quarter, maybe right. is what I would go with at the end of the day uh, with, with this. Um, I give Shawn Michaels credit for toughing it out. I'm not sure exactly how bad his back was at this point. Yeah. Uh, but 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 the fact that he he does manage to put something together, he should be credited for. And I would give Paul Diamond a lot of credit for taking the bumps that he did and for willing to be willing to work with Michaels in the condition he was in and work around him, uh, all this. So it's a certainly an interesting match to see. I, I think with a lot of these matches, we try to find – matches that either are unique matchups or unique gimmicks or u- u- unique uh, 
in some degree. And I agree with you. I did not know this match existed. I did not know that Sean wrestled this match until you brought it to my attention. And uh, it was very interesting to watch. And I had to look up Venom to see who he was. And when I found out it was Paul Diamond, I was like, oh, because he's working like a Raven grunge gimmick kind of thing here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I didn't recognize him offhand. But when I found out it was Paul Diamond, I go, oh, well, this makes perfect sense. You know, it makes perfect sense that Michaels would, would do something with Paul Diamond. He's probably a, the handful of guys that he would want to have wrestled at this point, given the physical condition. Again, I don't know how much he's hurting, but you can tell he is. And to me, that latter spot is the telltale sign that this is not prime Shawn Michaels. He's not coming yeah. off the top, he's coming off the second step. Yeah, because we know that he would return um, at SummerSlam in an unsanctioned match against Triple H, and uh-huh. he would have the Dutch boy haircut, as they like to call it, and uh, he would look a lot different. He had, uh, you know, I don't know if at this point he was a born again Christian, um, but that was certainly, you know, what was happening during his absence. You know, you know, he had a lot of healing to do, both mentally and physically. Um, so that's what makes this an interesting bump in the road, right? That this match yeah. exists at all. Um, you know, I would love for them to kind of somebody to clear up the video quality of it someday and, uh, you know, maybe give it new life. But uh, I would love to hear a commentary track with Paul Diamond and Shawn Michaels. Yes, that would make it a lot more interesting. I believe Diamond is still with us. Yes, yes. Um, we'll have to track him down for an interview. That would be an interesting hey. Um, anywho, let us know what you think of this match if you decide to watch it. It's available um, in a lot of places. You know, Shawn Michaels, just type in Shawn Michaels versus Venom, Shawn Michaels TWA match. You'll find it in many different ways. And uh, let us know what you think um, in the comments section. Check out our other videos, segment surgery, stupid questions, our full length episodes. We are also available wherever you listen to podcasts. And for Leonard, my name is Chad, and we will see you next time.